0: morning everybody it's good to be with you all again to dig into god's word i love working with hume in part because so much of the illustration of teaching is taken care of by these excellent presentations and this this image of jojo trying to run from god and the absurdity of that is something that i hope you're really catching and not only the absurdity of it but the self-damaging effects it has and the short-circuiting effect it has on him having the life god has for him and so we've, we've got to reorient our lives around those two basic facts of human enlightenment i talked about last night that there is a god and you're not him that's what god is trying to get jojo to understand and jonah to understand in our story so if you'd open your bibles again to jonah We'll be finishing off chapter one this morning and then diving in to all of chapter two as God continues to teach us the same lesson with Jonah. Do you know, there's an assumption in the Bible that you can get faith and hope and joy and meaning and purpose from the experiences of others. I don't know if you realize how countercultural that is, but we have what I would call a radical hyper-validation of personal subjective experience. This, there's this idea that you can't really know something, you can't really appreciate something, you can't really benefit from something unless you have first-hand, personal, subjective experience with it. But the Bible does not think that way, and we've got to learn to think that we can actually gain faith and hope and joy and meaning and purpose and a relationship with God Right along with Jonah, right along with Moses when we read about him in the Bible, right along with Isaiah or Peter or Paul, we are able to learn from them. There's this old hymn that has this great line I think about a lot. Lord, I trust thy mighty power, wondrous are thy works of old. This, in some ways, couldn't be more different than our experience and our context, but the assumption of the scriptures is that when we avail ourselves to what's here, we're actually able to learn and grow. The power of the Word of God is based in the fact that the Spirit of God who inspires it is the same God who opens our minds and hearts to understand it and transforms us through it. The American church is sadly biblically illiterate in many cases. Now, I'm confident that's not true in your churches, but I want to encourage you to be people devoted to the word, to be men and women of the word who love God and love his word and seek to see that word used in our lives. So I believe as we go to Jonah this morning, open our Bibles, God will work. He tells us that his word is powerful and it brings conviction of sin and it brings transformation and assurance of the saving Work of God in our lives. And so, please, let's go to the word eager to hear from God and be changed by him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of it, the comforting power, the convicting power, the transforming power. Now, Lord, help us this morning as we go to your word to not just go to some cold intellectual merely Bible study, but a deep dive into your heart and your mind through your words, and we do pray that the Spirit would be powerfully at work, and every one of us, Lord, would leave here more understanding of who you are, closer to you, walking more intimately with you, and I pray that the Spirit would do this through the word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we continue our story beginning at verse 11 of chapter 1 is trying to run from the Lord. He goes down into the sea. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the country. And now, that, I, th- I think that symbolism is quite in- intentional and specific. But now in verse 11, we pick up our story where we left off last night. Then they said to him, the sailors, what shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us. So they're fearing for their lives. This storm that the Lord has sent is going to kill them. And so they're saying, what should we do? He's owned the fact that he's the reason this judgment has come upon this ship. What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up, and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. It's just amazing. is aware that he's responsible. He's not trying to avoid the responsibility for this calamity that has fallen upon him and the sailors in this ship. He knows he's the reason. And he owns it. And he he says the only solution is to get rid of me, the source of this problem. It's because of me, he says. And I'm amazed that that's not the option they take. They know that Jonah is affiliated with this powerful God who's brought a storm, which says a lot to a bunch of sailors. So look what they do instead. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. They didn't take Jonah's option. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now, at this point, the sailors start to be held up, is a really good example. You've got Nineveh that's living in great evil, you've got Jonah that's living in great rebellion against his God and his calling as a prophet. But now you have these sailors who aren't the people of God, they're not the Israelites but they are starting to see the power of God in a way that really speaks to them as guys who spend their lives on the ocean. And so they are starting to have a respect and an awe and a fear and a reverence for this God. And they start to be an example for us in the middle of the Ninevites and of Jonah. Their response first is not to throw Jonah overboard, but try to get the shore. But then they can't. And then listen to what these pagans, these people outside of God's covenant people, do and say, verse 14, then they called out to Yahweh. This isn't some God. This isn't the God they had been previously worshiping. When you see all capital letters L-O-R-D in your English Bibles, that's the divine name Yahweh. If you see capital L, lowercase O-R-D in your Bibles, anybody know what Hebrew word that is? Adonai, yeah. Adonai, capital L, lowercase O-R-D, is just a general term for somebody in charge. You can use it for humans. But capital, all capital L-O-R-D like it is here, This is Yahweh. This is the divine name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He says, this is my divine name is the great I am and the God of your fathers, the God of the covenant, the God who's other and the God who's with, the God who's dependable and the God who's a consuming fire, the God who's holy and the God who's personally present to save you. And this becomes his divine sacred name used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. And these non-Israelite sailors... Hear about this God who's brought this storm, and they're so struck by his power that they start calling out to him using the sacred name of God Yahweh. They call out to Yahweh. They say, Oh Yahweh, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. They are recognizing the power and the sovereignty of the God of Israel, of the God of the Bible. There's this transformation going on in them. They recognize he's doing what he wants to do. Why would we go to any other God but the God who's controlling the seas? The God who's bringing judgment on his own prophet here in our midst. And we've just been swept up in this. There's no solution to our impending death than to go to the God who holds creation in his hands and is bringing a storm and judgment on this prophet of his. And so they turn and they go to Yahweh. They become an example for the prophet of God, Jonah. And for us, it's just amazing. They call out to him, you've done as it's pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, into that trash can. And the sea ceased from its raging. Can you imagine? If they weren't already impressed enough by the power of this God that Jonah told them about. They, they do what Jonah says. They throw him in the sea. And the sea stops. Anybody? Oh, some of you live near the ocean, right? Who lives near the ocean? Yes, Tell me, people, oh, look at all of you. That's just not fair. It's not fair you get to live by the ocean. But tell me something. When there's a storm, even when it's out at sea or at the shore, when there's a storm, what happens to the ocean? It gets wild, right? It, it's in turmoil. It stirs. And, and when the storm is over, does the turmoil of the sea stop? Eventually, but not at first, right? Sometimes it'll turn for days, and the surfing is great because of it, right? Well, imagine being in the midst of a storm after seeing storms your whole life as a sailor and seeing that for days, sometimes the effects of that storm will continue. And this time, though, you throw Jonah in the ocean and the storm, storm stops. You Remember who else did things like that? Jesus. On the Sea of Galilee, his disciples are terrified and they say, Lord, don't you care about us? We're going to die. And he's sleeping in the boat. And he gets up and he says, Oh, you of little faith, why do you fear? And he tells the sea to shut up. And it does. And it's like glass you want to impress sailors or fishermen you do that and all of a sudden they're seeing everything very differently than they had look at the response verse 8 verse 16 then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows that's an interesting word fear do you know the Bible commands us that we should not fear it says that sometimes the reason we fear is because we don't trust God enough. There's actually a sinful fear. But the Bible commands over and over again also that we should have a kind of healthy, holy fear of the Lord where we see him for who he is. We realize he's God and we're not. And it's crazy we need to even say that, but we do because it's the fundamental thing we forget. We actually think we are in the place of God. We actually think if we were running the world, we'd be doing a better job. And so we need to be reminded constantly that God is God. And we are his creatures created for him. And so they fear the Lord exceedingly. They greatly fear the Lord. And so my goal is to get rid in our preaching the word this weekend of any unhealthy fear. But to flood our souls with a healthy, holy fear of the Lord. Do you know, the Bible says wisdom comes from where? The beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. It's amazing how often it is, isn't, isn't it, that we pray for wisdom, but we don't pray for what the Bible says precedes wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, well, if I'm going to have wisdom, I need to know who God is and have a a holy, healthy fear of him. And I I think fear is a good word for the biblical words that we translate fear. It's not just sort of respect like you have for your teacher. It's something. You know know the best way I can define fear of the Lord? (gasps) That's it. I think that's the best definition. (gasps) Wow, I remember, I, I have a very, I don't, like, people say, what are you afraid of? Like, spiders or the dark or... I, there's nothing I'm afraid of in that kind of way. Really, I have this... It's actually a, a problem at times. I just... I'm not a fearful person to the point where I've been kind of reckless at times in my life. I, I won't tell you stories. I don't want to give you bad examples. But, but I'll just tell you, in college, my wife and I were dating before we were married, and my best friend nicknamed us... Uh, safety girl and danger boy because I, I'm a high risk taker. I, I just don't have a lot of fear. But there's a kind of fear we've got to have. I remember one time I was, uh, one of the times I, I experienced fear, it has been many times, one of the times I experienced fear, it, it, I, was, I was in Belize and there's an incredible reef where you could do some of the best snorkeling in the world. And, and so I was going to go out by myself and, and snorkel around this reef, but, but a bunch of people told me, don't go past the reef, whatever you do. That's the real ocean out there. And I remember when they would say that to me, thinking, I'm going past the reef. That's just how I'm wired. And, and so I did. I snorkeled around, around the reef for a while, but then tough I got all beat up on the reef but I I got past it and it was a different world than I had been snorkeling in for the past hour it got really deep like further deep than I could see and it, it started to rock and and be a completely different world and I was just thinking this is awesome i'm so glad i went past the reef and i'm experiencing something that's just making me feel so alive adrenaline's going and i'm saying this is great i'm so glad i went past the reef and then something swam by me that i didn't get a good look at but it went by fast and it was huge (laughs) And by the time I looked to get a good look at it, I couldn't see it anywhere. And I'm looking for it, and I'm looking for it. And it goes by this this side. And it was gone again. I was fearful. Everything changed for me in that moment. I had this overwhelming sense of, oh, no. I am completely on homeboy's turf. I am not safe right now. He completely owns me right now. And I'm sure he knows it. I got to get out of here and I got out of there as fast as I possibly could. I was way out of my league. And there's something about knowing God. And that sort of, oh. I'm not in charge. I'm not in control. I I didn't create this little world i'm in right now i am dependent i'm frail i'm struggling i need to get out of here or get salvation right and so there's something so right about feeling very small in light of how massive god is sometimes we try to spend our lives making god smaller than he is and ourselves bigger than we are and it's easy if you live in the suburbs driving a big SUV, you know, drive my my Hummer around in the suburbs, even though I don't need that. If you have a Hummer, that's fine. They're cool, but at least get off road occasionally with the thing. But got your big venti coffee, just feeling big. You ain't big. You ain't big. My brother lived in Fairbanks, Alaska, for a long time, and I hitchhiked up there after college. See, I'm a risk taker. I, I, I hitchhiked all over the country for a couple couple of months and i hitchhiked to alaska to see my brother and i got up there and i it was september and it was already like dark half the day and it was it was getting cold and snowing and i said carl why do you live here and he said because i feel small here i feel small here you know you look out and you can't feel like you're big and all that significant in the grand scheme of things it's good it's humbling for me to live here i loved that answer and we need to figure out ways to make ourselves feel rightly small in light of the magnitude of God. Much of the messages we hear today try to make us feel really big, even by well-intentioned friends and coaches and parents and, and, and mentors. They'll say things like, you can do anything you set your mind to. You've heard that, haven't you? Is that true? No. Who can do anything he sets his mind to? God. Who else? Nobody. Nobody. I mean, the next time a well-intentioned coach or friend or even parent says to you, you can do anything you set your mind to, you know what you should say? Blasphemy! Blasphemy! That's what that is. You're calling me God right now, and I'm not. I appreciate the effort to encourage me, but please have some proportion. In your understanding of it, don't use overstatement and hyperbole that basically makes me like God. He can do anything he sets his mind to. I don't want to minimize the fact that I do believe most people don't realize how much they're capable of. That's what that expression is trying to get to. But in the process, it talks to you as if you're God. As if you really do anything you set your mind to. There are a million and one things right now we could talk about that you can't do even if you set your mind to it. Like fly. We'll just start there. And so, so let's let's just let's just get some proportion here. We live in a culture that feeds a narcissistic self-absorption and a human deification all the time, turning us into little gods in our own estimation. And it's so helpful to go through the process these sailors and Jonah now is going through. They sacrifice to the Lord, they make vows. And watch what happens: Jonah's about to drown. He's about to die. And God once again brings his sovereign power to the equation. Chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to Yahweh, his God, from the belly of the fish. A, A fish swallowed. Let me just pause right here. Some of you read that and you're like, what? Maybe you're like, a fish swallowed Jonah. And he didn't die. And he writes poetry. From the belly, of the, really, you are expecting me to believe this? I remember, I was changing attire for a young lady one time on the side of the road. And uh, it, it's a great story, lots of aspects of it. But I'll never forget one moment in our conversation. Um, she had a little baby in the car, and I said, Hey, Melissa, what are you going to teach your son when he grows up about things like God and heaven and hell and life and death? and she said oh you sound like my mother's friend who goes to church all the time she said uh yeah you know i went to a lutheran school growing up i learned some things in the bible but i believe god created everything but i just have a real problem with things in the bible i said like what she said well we'll start with the virgin birth the 17 year old young lady had just given birth not long before this conversation you could understand why she'd have a hard time the virgin birth how does that happen And i said melissa You just said you believe god created everything from nothing with his words and you don't think he can pull off the virgin birth and she said oh i never thought of it that way but i don't know what you think about miracles but god intervenes in human history god does things that accelerates the normal human process sometimes like turning water to wine He opens seas so his people can pass through and then closes them on top of the Egyptians. He does the kinds of miracles he's doing here. And if he rose Jesus from the dead, the greatest miracle of all, and can raise you from the dead through that same power, we don't start saying, well, miracles are fine, but not fish swallowing a guy. We don't have sort of these categories of miracles that I can accept and ones I can't. When you believe that the Creator's intervening in human history and in creation, well, you can you can accept anything this Creator God does now. It's interesting. And if you don't believe in miracles, I just want to ask you why. Why? P- please don't think it comes from a, a scientific worldview, because the scientific worldview doesn't address issues like miracles. It just studies repeatable things, unlike miracles. It doesn't have answers for most of the really big, really most important questions in life. I just talked to my doctor. I went to my doctor last week, and... Dr. Richardson was asking me all about what I teach at Biola. And he was very interested in theology and in and getting questions, answers to these things. And I, I thought, man, the next time I talk to him, I might make an appointment even if I don't need one, just so I can talk to him. Because I want to say to him, you know, in med school, you learned all the things medicine can do. But that they teach you what you should do? What's right and what's wrong, and I maybe had a class in medical ethics, I don't know. But the Bible answers the big questions we really care about, not just what we're capable of doing, but what we should do, what's honoring to God and what isn't. And so so we have to follow this example of miracles being displayed here and say, yeah, this is incredible. I don't think we need to figure out sort of some hierarchy of miracles and which ones we're willing to accept or not. And so Jonah prays to the Lord now after God appoints, that's a really important word, the Lord appoints in verse 17 a great fish to swallow up Jonah. He's about to die, and God, still through discipline, but through saving discipline now, provides an escape through this fish that swallows him. And he cries out to the Lord. Listen to this amazing crying out to the Lord. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, That's the end of life. He's about to die. I cried, and you heard my voice. And listen to how clear it is to Jonah that God is the one who's running the show. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. These aren't just nature. These are God-orchestrated nature, and events. Your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. Grateful heart that even in the midst of severe discipline Jonah sees the sovereign grace of God at work And he submits to him and acknowledges him and we'll see in the remaining messages that the, The journey's not over with Jonah. He still has a lot to learn But he's recognizing God is think you can run from God that's why the comedic element of these these uh, these uh, plays are so helpful because there is something powerfully comedic about the thought that you can run from God it's laughable that we think that's even possible that this prophet of God thinks he can do that God is sovereign he's sovereign over Jonah he's sovereign over the Ninevites he's sovereign over the sailors he's sovereign over Rebellion. that's how loving he is and gracious he is he comes with the same relentless sovereign love that he wants to show to the Ninevites and he wants to show to you and to me this morning he won't be denied in his pursuit to love us to save us to forgive us and even these pagan sailors come to see the truth of this our whole lives around god would you just flip to psalm 139 you know psalms the book of psalms is right in the middle of your bible so if you just take your bible and go right to the middle and open it up you're likely to be in psalms but psalm and by the way you know it's the book of psalms when you refer to a single psalm it's not psalms 139 it's And reigns over God's people, representing God as the king. A priest represents people before God. So here's King David coming to realize the very same things is realizing and that we should be realizing with him. Psalm 139, O oh Lord, Yahweh, right? You have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. from your presence. I find this very interesting. You know, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there. Now I think something changes in his heart. He says, I wanted to run from God. I wanted to run and get away from him in my shame and my rebellion and my pride. But look what happens. There's a transformation in verse 10. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So he doesn't want to run anymore. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me, substance. In your book are written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What a beautiful picture of who God is for us. His presence, his sovereign control is an inescapable reality. If we try to run from him, it becomes a radical threat to us. But when we see God's heart for who he is and So I love dogs. Any dog lovers in here? Oh, yes. I love dogs. Oh. Um, and my wife didn't love dogs. She grew up in a home that didn't have dogs. Her father would always say, why well, is everybody happen to have a blankety blank dog? He just didn't understand it. He didn't, didn't like it. And she so didn't like dogs. She didn't like they slobbered on you and all this stuff. Well, when we started adopting, I want more bubble. That's my wife. That's at Hume up, up in the Sierras. But that's old Bo. We've had him five years now. He's he's 15. And he's a, a, but he, his whole world revolves around my wife. His whole world. Bo always wants to know where she is. He, he'll walk, he'll walk in a room. He'll, he'll be sleeping and he'll wake up and he'll immediately start looking for Donna. And he'll walk all, he'll get his old bones up and he'll walk all And I'm saying, oh, she's not home. She went to the store while you were asleep. But he he goes to every room trying to find her.